Chapter Twenty One of Wolf the Saxon by George Alfred Henty. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Hastings. The fiction of the Norman historians that while the Normans passed the night preceding the battle in prayer, the English spent it in feasting, is even more palpably absurd than the many other falsehoods invented for the purpose of damaging the character of Harold. The English army had marched nearly seventy miles in the course of two days, and had in addition laboured incessantly for many hours in erecting the palisades and in digging ditches. We may be sure that after two such days the great mass of the army lay down dog-tired directly their work was done, and slept till morning. Harold and his thanes had shared in their labours, and knowing the terrible work that awaited them in the morning, would most surely be disposed to get as long a sleep as possible to prepare for it. But what is most opposed to the Norman story is the fact that Harold was a sincerely and deeply religious man, far more so than his rival. The life of the one man was in accordance with his professions. He was gentle and merciful and ever ready to forgive his enemies, adverse to bloodshed, and so true a friend of the church that the whole of the prelates and clergy set the interdict of the pope at naught for his sake the only exception in his clemency to the conquered was in the case of the welsh and in this instance the stern measures he adopted were in the end the most merciful no oaths could bind these marauders and the stern punishment he inflicted was the means of procuring for the west of england a respite from their incursions that lasted for three generations. William of Normandy, on the contrary, was absolutely merciless in warfare. He was not cruel for the sake of cruelty, but where he deemed that the policy demanded it, he was ruthless, and spared neither age nor sex. He was lavish to the church, but it was rather because he needed and obtained its aid than for any feeling of real piety. In point of ability, both civil and military, the Duke of Normandy and Harold of England were perhaps about equal. In point of nobility of character, there was no comparison between them. We may be sure that the night before the battle Harold prayed as earnestly as he had prayed at Waltham for the aid of heaven. Wolf and Beorn lay down among the thanes after Harold, sitting with them round a fire, had explained his plans for the battle. So calmly and confidently did he speak, and so strong was their position, that even those who had, like Wolfe, doubted the wisdom of an advance until the whole force of England had assembled, now felt something like an assurance of victory, and all lay down to sleep with the belief that the victory at Stamford Bridge would be repeated. On waking, Wolfe visited his men. They were already astir, and he was astounded at seeing among them the towering figure of Osgod. "'Why, what means this, Osgod?' he exclaimed. "'Did I not order you to rest quietly at York?' "'That you did, my lord,' Osgod said. "'And no man obeys your orders more readily than I. "'And everything that you bid me to do, I am willing to do it, if possible. "'But in this it was not possible, for I could not remain at York, "'either in rest or quiet. "'I should have had fever in my blood, "'and would by this time have been lying as deep in the earth "'as Harold of Norway himself.' Therefore, in order to get the rest and quiet you had ordered, it was necessary for me to come south. As you had left me well supplied with money, I was able to do so in comfort, and though I could well enough walk, I have had myself carried in a litter by easy stages. 
I reached London on Wednesday night, having been a fortnight on the way, and arrived here an hour since. Each day I walked a little so as to keep my health and exercise my limbs, and so well have I succeeded that my wound has well nigh healed, and although I doubt whether I shall be able to use a heavy axe, I trust I shall be able to strike hard enough with a right hand to split a few Norman helms. "'But the exertion may set your wounds bleeding afresh, Osgod,' Wolf said, unable to repress a smile at Osgod's argument. Uh, "'Methinks there's no fear of that. The most nights I have slept at monasteries, and I have inquired from monks, whom I told that I must needs stand by your side to-day, whither I should be fit. They said at first that there would be some risk in the matter, but that if I continued to take rest and quiet as I was doing, and the wound continued to heal favourably, it was possible—' if I abstain from actual fighting, I might do so. But of late they have spoken more confidently. I told the monk who seared my arm to do it heartily, for a little pain more or less was of small account, so that he made a good job of it. And so, what with the rest and quiet, and my mind being at ease, it went on so well that a monk who examined it at Westminster on Wednesday evening told me that save for the healing of the skin, the wound was pretty nigh cured and that he thought there was no chance whatever of its breaking out afresh. He bandaged it tightly to prevent any rush of blood to the veins, and though when I drove an axe just now into that stump yonder, I felt that I had not got back my strength fully. I expect when I warm to the work I shall strike as strongly as most. Well, at any rate, you must take care of yourself, Osgod. You can aid me in keeping our men steady, but I charge you not to fight yourself unless you see the line waver. Then you can, of course, throw yourself into the fray. I will keep myself back for that, master, but I am sure we shall have to do our best before sunset. And as all will be risking their lives, there is no reason why I should not do so as well as the rest. The troops made a hearty breakfast from the food they carried, and quenched their thirst at the little stream that ran down by the side of the slope. Then they were told off to the ground they were to occupy. At nine in the morning the vanguard of the Norman army appeared over the brow of a rise, and the English at once took up their positions. In the centre were the housecarls of the royal house, and those of the thanes, together with the men of Kent, whose right it was ever to be in the front of a battle, and the London citizens under their sheriff. All these were armed and attired like the housecarls. In the centre of this array flew the royal standard, and around it were the three royal brothers, Alfwig their uncle, with his monk's cowl over his helmet, and their nephew Harkon, the son of Swain. The housecarls were in triple line, to the left and right of them were the levies, as brave as their more heavily armed comrades, but altogether without discipline, and armed in the most primitive manner. A few only carried swords or axes, the majority had spears or javelins, many had only forks or sharp stakes, or some carried stone hammers and axes, such as were used by their primitive ancestors. As the Norman army wound down from the opposite hill, and formed up the order of battle, Harold rode along in the front of his line, exhorting to all to stand firm. They were there, he said, to defend their country, and to defend their country they had but to hold the hill. Were they steadfast and firm, they could assuredly resist the attack of this host, who came to capture and plunder England. The order in which the Normans prepared for battle was similar to that of the English. Both commanders had been well informed by spies of the strength and position of their opponents, and the Duke placed his tried Norman troops in the centre 
to match themselves against the English housecarls. His Breton contingent was on his left, while on the right were the French, the Flemings, and other foreign adventurers who had come to fight under his banner. In the front line were the archers and slingers, who were to open the battle and shake the line of the defenders. Behind these came the infantry, who were to hew down the palisades and clear away for the cavalry charge full into the centre of the English host. A Norman trumpet gave the signal for the commencement of the battle, and the archers along the whole line poured a storm of arrows into the English. It was unanswered, for there were few bowmen among the defenders of the hill, and the distance was too great for the javelin men to hurl their missiles. After the archers had shot several volleys of arrows, they fell back, and the infantry advanced against the hill. But before they did so, Talifer, a Norman minstrel, dashed forward on horseback, and spurring up the ascent, tossing his sword in the air and catching it as it fell, rode up to the English line. One man he pierced with a lance, another he cut down with his sword, and then fell dead under the blow of a heavy axe. This mad exploit had scarce terminated when the Norman infantry advanced up the hill. They were greeted with a shower of stones and javelins which slew many, but with unbroken front they pressed upwards until they reached the palisade. Here a desperate struggle began. The Norman sword and spear were met by the axes of the housecarls, and the clubs, spears and forks of the levies. In vain Norman, Breton, Frenchman and Fleming strove to break the English line. The high position of the defenders gave them a great advantage over their assailants, among whose crowded ranks the javelin men did great execution, while the Normans could receive little aid from their archers. Both sides fought with obstinate valour. The Norman battle-cry was God help us, the English God Almighty and the Holy Cross, the latter invocation being to the relic at Waltham, which was the king's special object of devotion. With jeering cries, too, they greeted the efforts of their assailants to cross the palisade and break their line. At last the Norman infantry fell back broken and baffled, having suffered terrible loss, and now the knights and horsemen, who formed the backbone of William's army, rode up the hill. The duke himself, as well as his brother Odo, bishop of Bayeux, who fought beside him, had laid aside their Norman swords, and were armed with heavy maces, weapons as formidable as the English axe, but the valour of the horsemen, the strength of their armour, the length of their lances, and the weight of their horses, availed no more against the shield-wall of the housecarls than the infantry had done. The superior height and strength of the English, and the sweep of their terrible battle-axes, counterbalanced the advantage of the horses afforded to the Normans, and hitherto irresistible chivalry of Normandy and France were for the first time dashed backwards by trained infantry. In front of the English line the ground was thickly covered with fallen men and horses. There were but few wounded among them, for where the English axe fell, whether on horse or rider, it did its work thoroughly. But the English too had suffered. The action of swinging the axe with both arms above the head left the neck and upper part of the body exposed, and many had fallen pierced through and through by the Norman spears. A great shout of triumph rose from the English line as the Norman horsemen, unable to do more, fell sullenly back down the hill. As in the centre the king with his thanes and housecarls had repelled the attack of the Normans, 
so on the flanks the english levies had held their ground against the bretons and french but carried away by their exultation the levies on the right forgetful of harold's express orders that no man was to stir from his place until he himself gave the signal for pursuit broke their line and rushing down the hill fell on the retreating bretons unable to withstand the onslaught and already disheartened by their failure the bretons fled in wild alarm and rushing towards the centre for protection threw the normans also into confusion the panic spread rapidly the host wavered and already began to fly when william throwing off his helmet rode among them and exhorting some and striking others with a lance he had caught up at last he restored order and the breton infantry rallied and fell upon their pursuers killing many and driving the rest back up the hill again the norman infantry and cavalry together advanced up the hill and the terrible struggle recommenced william and his brother the bishop performed prodigies of valour but not less valiantly fought harold of england and his brothers the palisade was by this time destroyed in many places and desperate hand-to-hand -hand contests now took place cutting his way through meaner foes the duke strove to reach the royal standard and encounter harold himself he was nearing his goal when girth sprang forward eager above all things to protect harold from harm he hurled a javelin at william but the dart struck the norman's horse only and it fell beneath him william leapt to his feet and springing upon girth smote with his heavy mace full on his helmet and the noble earl of east anglia fell dead at his feet almost at the same moment his brother leofwin fighting sword in hand was slain but the fall of the two royal brothers in no way changed the fate of the battle the men of kent and essex furious at the fall of their beloved earls fought even more fiercely than before to avenge their deaths william had remounted but his second horse was also slain eustace of boulogne offered him his horse and himself mounting that of one of his followers they fell together upon the english line but all the valour of the duke and his chivalry failed to break it on the french left the bretons had indeed succeeded in completely destroying the palisade but the levies stood firm and no impression was made upon their solid line the attack had failed and even william saw that it was hopeless any more to hurl his troops against the shield wall but the manner in which the english irregulars had been induced to break their array led him to try by a feigned retreat to induce them to repeat their error while the fight yet raged around him he sent orders to the bretons to turn and flee and then if the defenders pursued them to turn upon them while he ordered a portion of his norman force to make straight for the gap as soon as the english left their posts the stratagem was successful again with exulting shouts the levies poured out in pursuit of the bretons those fled for some distance and then suddenly turning fell upon their pursuers ill-armed and undisciplined as the levies were and unable to withstand the attack of such overwhelming numbers they bore themselves gallantly one party took possession of a small outlying hill and with showers of darts and stones they killed or drove off all who attacked them the greater part however made their way to broken ground to the west of the hill and made a stand on the steep bank of a small ravine the french horsemen charging down upon them unaware of the existence of the ravine fell into it and were slaughtered in such numbers 
by the knives and spears of the English that the ravine was well nigh filled up with their dead bodies. But gallantly as the levies had retrieved their error, it was a fatal one. As soon as they had left their line, the Normans told off for the duty, pressed into the gap, and were followed by the whole of their main body, and thus the English lost the advantage of position, and the contending hosts faced each other on the hill, the ground now occupied by the Normans being somewhat higher than that on which the housecarls stood. It was now about three in the afternoon, and the fight had been raging for six hours. But though thus outflanked, and the order of their battle destroyed, the veterans of Harold showed neither alarm nor discouragement. Their formation was changed, the shield wall still faced the Normans, and for a time every effort to break it failed. In vain the Norman cavalry charged down upon it. In vain their duke plied his terrible mace. Occasionally men, worn out by the long defensive battle, sprang from the English ranks and engaged knight or baron hand to hand. All along the line such single-handed conflicts were going on, and the roar of the battle was as loud and fierce as at the beginning of the day. So for three more hours the fight went on, with diminishing numbers but with undiminished bravery the English still held their ground. And as twilight was now closing in, it seemed as if they would maintain it till nightfall. Then William ordered up his archers again, bade them shoot their arrows high into the air, so that they should fall among the king and his thanes grouped round the standard. The effect was terrible. Through helm and shoulder-guard the arrows made their way. The soldiers held their shields above their heads, but the thanes had no such protection. Harold glanced up for a moment, and as if directed by the hand of fate, an arrow struck him full in the eye, and he fell prostrate as if struck by a thunderbolt. A cry of horror and dismay burst from the thanes around him. But there was no time for the indulgence of grief. The Normans too had seen the king fall, and with shouts of triumph a body of knights tried to force their way in to take possession of his body. But so long as an Englishman could swing axe this was not to be, and the assault was repulsed as others had been before. Nor, when the news of Harold's fall spread, did the brave housecarls lose heart, but sternly and obstinately as ever held together. At last the Normans burst in at the centre, each baron and knight striving to be the first to pluck down the standards. The one the king's own cognizance, the other the national banner that waved side by side. One after another the thanes were smitten down. Not one asked for quarter, not one turned his back upon the foe. Bion and Wolf had through the long fight stood side by side, and the watchfulness with which they guarded each other had carried them so far unharmed through it. It's all over now, Bion, Wolf said, but it is not hard to die, for without Harold the cause of England is lost. At any rate we will sell our lives dearly, Bion said, as he struck a Norman knight from his horse, but they were the last defenders of the standards, and the end was at hand. Blows rained down upon them. Bion was beaten on to one knee. Wolf was so exhausted by his exertions that he could scarce swing his axe, when a Norman baron pressed his horse through the throng, and, springing to the ground, held his sword aloft and shouted, "'Stand back! Stand back! These two men hold the Duke's solemn pledge for their lives.' Some of the others still pressed on, but he shouted again, "'Whoever strikes at them strikes at me!' 
there was still hesitation so furious were the normans at the resistance they had met with and the tremendous losses they had suffered but another baron exclaimed de burg is right i heard the pledge given and so did many of you this is the young saxon who saved the duke's camp from the attack by the bretons and bore the brunt of their assault till we had time to arm the other brought with him the news that harold was wrecked the words were decisive and the normans turned aside their horses to attack other foes thank god i arrived in time wolf baron de burg said i knew you would be near the standard but i was fighting elsewhere when the news reached me that the line was broken and the standard on the point of capture are you badly hurt beorn i am dizzy and faint beorn who had risen to his feet replied unsteadily but i think not badly wounded walk by me one on each side holding my stirrup leathers i would place you on my horse but it were best that i myself should be seen he removed his helmet and bareheaded moved off with the young thanes walking beside him many normans stopped as he made his way down the hill but to their questions he replied the duke himself has guaranteed the safety of these thanes and as he was well known to stand high in the duke's favour his word was at once accepted in the meantime harold's standard whose emblem was a fighting man and the golden dragon the national banner had been carried off in triumph four of the normans whose names were long held in infamy by the english discovered the body of the dying king for it is said that he still breathed one of these was eustace of boulogne the only man in the two armies who had during the engagement showed signs of craven fear another was the son of that count Porthieu who had once held harold prisoner the others were gifford and montfort one ran his spear through harold's breast the other struck off his head with his sword a third pierced the dead body while the fourth further insulted the dead hero by cutting off one of his legs an action however which william when he heard of it pronounced to be shameful and expelled its perpetrator from the army but though the king was dead and the standard lost the survivors of the house still fought on until darkness fell the levies had fled just before hotly pursued by the norman horse knowing the ground well the light-armed footmen fled across a bog and in the fast-gathering darkness their pursuers did not notice the nature of the ground but galloping on plunged into the morass where great numbers of them perished miserably either suffocated in the mud or slain by the english who turned and fell upon them with axe and spear as soon as they saw their plight so great was the slaughter that those who had reined up their horses in time were stricken with horror even after all the carnage they had witnessed on the field of battle with darkness the battle came to an end few indeed of the house cars drew off under cover of darkness their force being almost annihilated with them had perished almost the whole of the thanes of the south of england and east anglia the sheriff of london had been carried off desperately wounded by a few of his friends but with this exception none of harold's companions and thanes left the field alive while daylight lasted a few only the next morning were found breathing among the mass of dead and some of these survived and returned at last to their homes for william satisfied with the complete victory he had gained issued orders that all found alive on the field were to be well treated he felt that he was now king of england and that clemency was his best policy permission was given to the women who flocked in from the country round to search for the bodies of their friends and to remove them for burial 
he also commanded a search to be made for the body of harold but during the night while the exhausted soldiers slept heavily after their labours the camp followers had been busy with the work of plunder busiest around the spot where the standards had stood for here were stores of gold bracelets and rings the emblems of authority of the thanes to be collected and rich garments to be carried off thus then the heaps of corpses that marked the spot where the fighting had all day been heaviest were unrecognisable so terrible had been the wounds dealt by sword battle-axe and mace de burg had kept wolf and beorn with him all night and they had lain down and slept together in the morning he committed them to the charge of some of his personal followers while he went to the duke to inform him of what he had done thank you de burg william said they are two brave young fellows i marked them in the fight more than once when i was near the standard and i should have grieved if ill had befallen them for they did me loyal service i had given my word that they should retain their estates in case i ever came to the throne here i know not what to do with them were i to let them go now they would assuredly take part in any further resistance that the english may offer me i will not ask them now to swear allegiance to me for fresh from the battle where they have lost so many friends and the earl they love so loyally they would assuredly refuse if you will grant me a short leave i will take ship back to normandy and place them in the care of my wife where they can remain until matters have settled down here it is a good idea de burgs do so without delay methinks that after yesterday there will be no real resistance offered to me harold and his brothers and all the leading thanes lie dead there was no one left to lead the people or to organize a resistance therefore i can spare you for a time thanking the duke de burg returned to his captives and told them what had been arranged we owe you our heartiest thanks lord de burg for your kindness beorn said assuredly so long as england resists we will not acknowledge william of normandy as king but when resistance ceases we will of course take the oath to him if only for the sake of our people partial risings could but bring down his vengeance and cause suffering and ruin to all concerned therefore we gratefully accept your offer but first of all we beg you to let us go to the spot where our housecarls fought you remember wolf's man osgod that i do indeed de burg replied the great fellow who fought by his side that night against the bretons and saved my son's life was he there he was wolf said though greatly against my wishes for he had lost an arm in the fight at stamford bridge and though it is little more than a fortnight since he had himself carried down here contrary to my orders and insisted upon joining in the battle i would fain search for his body and give him burial i will come with you at once the norman said i too owe him a debt of gratitude the housecarls of staining had fallen to a man where they stood and among them after some searching they came upon the body of osgod distinguished alike by its bulk and the loss of an arm his axe lay with a broken shaft by his side his helmet was cleft asunder and his face covered with blood his body is yet warm wolf said as he lifted his arm i believe he still lives de burg called upon two norman soldiers near to aid and with their assistance wolf and beorn carried osgod down to the stream where they washed the blood from his face and bathed the wound in his head he's certainly alive beorn said doubtless he was stunned by the blow and has remained unconscious from the loss of blood de burg sent for a flask of wine and a little of this was poured through osgod's lips presently there was a deep sigh and a slight motion of the figure and then osgod opened his eyes 
at first he seemed bewildered but as his eyes fell on wolf a look of pleasure came into them and he smiled faintly i'm alive osgod and glad indeed to find that you are also beorn has also escaped take a draught of wine you have lost a lot of blood and had none to spare they lifted him into a sitting position and held the cup to his lips while he drank a long draught that is better he murmured i can feel it going through my veins i shall be able to wield an axe yet again this comes of fighting with a weapon you don't know the shaft broke as i was guarding my head and i don't remember anything after it saved your life though osgod for it broke the force of the blow which otherwise would have cleft your skull as it is it has not gone very deep and the blood you have lost has run chiefly from a wound on your left shoulder how is it that you are here osgod asked looking round at the normans we are prisoners though we have not surrendered wolf replied we were saved by our good friend lord de burg who has joined us in our search for you we are to be taken to normandy as prisoners and to remain in charge of lady de burg you shall go too osgod de burg said you will find it hard to be nursed here and my wife will see that your wounds are well cared for your master will stay with you for the present for i have matters to see about before we start for the coast in half an hour he returned i have to ask you to perform a last service to your dead king he said the bodies of girth and leofwin have been found and borne away by your people for burial but none can find the body of harold all the dead that were near the standard were removed last night by the soldiers and among the great pile of dead none can recognize that of your king well as they knew him wolf and beorn were unable to recognize the body of harold amongst the ghastly heap of mutilated corpses after a time wolf said there is one who might recognize it when all others failed it is edith whom he so long loved as his wife she may recognize it by some mark or sign unknown to others if you will give me leave i will ride to lewis where she is staying and bring her hither certainly wolf i will obtain a safe conduct for you from the duke wolf had ridden however but a mile along the western road when he saw a litter approaching borne by four men he reined in his horse by its side an order was given from within and as the bearers lowered it to the ground edith stepped out she was deadly pale her eyes were red with weeping and she seemed to wolf to have aged years since he saw her a week before my presentiments have come true wolf she said it was no surprise to me when last night the news came that the battle was lost and harold slain i had looked and waited for it you were coming to fetch me yes lady harold's body has not been found early this morning two monks of waltham who had followed the army and seen the fight afar off came into camp and with them gaitha harold's mother she saw the duke and begged for harold's body offering its weight in gold if she might carry it for burial to the abbey of waltham the duke refused saying that an excommunicated man could not be buried in a holy place she might remove the bodies of her two other sons but harold's when found should be buried by the sea-coast the monks searched in vain for the body beorn and i have done the same but have failed to recognize it in so vast a heap of slain i shall know it edith said among a thousand dead i should know harold it's a terrible sight lady for a woman to look upon wolf said gently i shall see nothing but him she replied firmly he accompanied her back to the battleground where the two monks joined her wulf who was greatly shaken by the sight of her set and white face left her with them 
what the eye of friendship had failed to accomplish that of love detected unerringly there were marks on harold's body by which edith recognized it one of the monks bore the news to the duke who charged sir william mallet to superintend the burial and to do it with all honour the remains were collected and reverently placed together they were wrapped in a purple robe and laid on a litter Beon and wolf and the two monks lifted it edith walked behind followed by lord de burgh and several other norman knights and barons who had known harold in normandy and could admire and appreciate the valour of the dead hero the little procession went down to the shore where norman soldiers had already dug a grave and there by the coast he had defended so well harold was laid to rest and over his body a great cairn of stones was raised by order of the duke End of chapter 21